0: we're taking you to Greece this month but also on a journey through time from Homer's Iliad all the way to the present day with food and memory along the way. The closest thing to a time machine is this month's Vintage Podcast. This month we escaped the studio this month we're not even allowing the constrictions of space and time to hold us will what's going on
1: Uh, as far as i'm concerned alex you are the first female doctor who and i am your slightly befuddled companion (laughs) we are we're going to go on a tour uh, of greece but not just you know not today we're going all the way back to antiquity we're going to be talking about the present day we're going to be taking in the current financial crisis it's all going on
0: so what's our tardis
1: um, I guess it's the same old studio, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's not even bigger on the inside, but um, uh, it, it does the job that we the need The random
0: house TARDIS, smaller <laughs> on the inside.
1: <laughs> we are lucky. We have got three very different things on our podcast this month, um, but true to form after last month's podcast where we were imbibing alcohol, this month we have got food to start us off.
0: It's so great that Alexandre has come in today. I mean... How can we say? Not empty-handed. Hello, Alex.
2: (laughs) Beware of Greeks bearing
3: gifts.
0: (laughs) I don't think I will beware. I'm so pleased I haven't had any lunch today. I actually feel a little bit like Jenny Murray on Woman's (laughs) Hour when they do the recipe. Um, Just amazing. We've got in front of us, and I know it's, it's a sort of invidious thing to describe food to people listening. I'm very sorry if you're hungry, but do not worry. You will soon be able to make this yourself, I'm sure. We've got absolutely delicious plates filled with colour and texture and different smells. I think you should start by just plucking one. I think this one here with beetroot, some form of something that looks a little bit like commerce, and some very strange little yellow jewel-like things. What are they?
2: <laughs> They're pickled raisins, um, the idea being to try and reproduce sour grapes which were a very useful thing in uh, the, around the mediterranean in um you know classical times when there were no lemons around i know it's impossible to imagine mediterranean cuisine without tomatoes potatoes lemons aubergines uh, white beans but all those things are relatively new imports from either the east or the west
0: it is really um, amazing lemon is something i would associate so strongly with greek cookery
2: yes as you would tomatoes uh, as you would potatoes mm-hmm. i mean mm. it is it's impossible to imagine italian pasta without tomato and yet tomato sauces are a very very recent uh addition to italian cuisine in the grand scheme of things <laughs> <laughs> and so i think that's a that's a a really interesting springboard um from which to start to think what food means in terms of identity and how it changes as relations between nations become different and trade happens and new ingredients come, come to a country and how people use that and integrate them in their cuisine.
0: I mean, migration. Yes. You know, the huge driver of Different kinds of cookery for hundreds and thousands of years. Absolutely.
2: Especially in the case of Greece, which Mm. has, um, you know, for 3,000 years been a nation that has either um, occupied someone else's lands or has been occupied itself. Mm. Mm. And so that mix has been a constant, constant feature. And uh, what you have today as modern Greek cookery is really the mix of. Essentially, two groups of Greeks the Greeks that lived in the mainland and the Greeks that lived in Asia Minor. Um, so, when there was a huge population ex- exchange after the First World War and all the Greeks of Asia Minor and Constantinople were pushed out, what happened is that you had on one side uh, a, a sort of a basis of cooking that was all about freshness, all about herbs. And on the other side, you had the classic traditions of the Middle East that were all about spice. Mm. And when those two came together, you got the wonderful fusion that is Greek cooking today. Um, So something that is completely quintessential, like stuffed tomatoes or uh, this that we have here, briam, um, is entirely a fusion of that Asia-minor spicy cuisine with the very fresh Mediterranean cuisine that existed in Greece before.
0: Yes, I can see lots of fresh vegetables there. I think courgettes and aubergines and carrots, and it just looks so enticing and also so healthy. I mean, this is something that we're told over and over and again, (laughs) how healthy we would all be if we adopted... A Mediterranean diet. <laughs> yes, but I think
2: uh, one can't do that selectively. Um, you can't just sprinkle a bit of oregano and drizzle olive oil and everything and think, oh, I'm being terribly healthy. That's no, Mediterranean diet. I understand it's more complicated you know, uh, than that, isn't it? And, and actually, <laughs> Greek cuisine has a, 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 quite a bad rep, I think, because it's seen as very meat-based and very, um, you know, full of toxins in a way. And that's because I think that there's a sense of hospitality there that, that simply does not allow you to make the sort of things I've made for you today. You would never get them in a restaurant. You would never be served them as guests in a Greek home because it would be considered outrageously mean to serve a vegetable, a roast vegetable medley to a guest. You would only, by definition, get Sunday best food. When you went to a, a Greek restaurant or a Greek home
0: so that's why we think of those wonderful lamb stews yes. and
2: and they are part of it, mm. but they're very much an occasional treat mm. um and so but the beating heart of Greek cuisine is all about beans and pulses and vegetables and soups and things like that um and it is heavily plant based um And it involves also a period of fasting, which is where we're we're at now. We're in the six-week fast before Greek Orthodox Easter, um, which again is a very important part of the Mediterranean diet. You know, um, giving your liver, your internal organs, a a six-week break from animal protein um, every year is a big, big thing um, health-wise. And so you can't pick and choose dishes here and there and fool yourself into thinking that you're being terribly healthy because you're eating Mediterranean food.
0: This is speaking um, very badly to my idea of simply eating <laughs> no, moussaka yeah, and calamari listen, for the rest of my life.
2: Calamari is great, masaka is great, all of it is great, but the truth is that, you know, actually the the sort of temperatures you get in the summer, it's almost impossible to sit down and have cooked m- Food all the time and so for a a long period we exist on salads and fruit and stuff like that you know stuff that you can just grab out of the fridge um, or you can have at room temperature because it's simply too hot to to roast a massive dish with loads of meat and bechamel and sort of sit there and eat that there is a place for it and a time for it and you know glorious it is but it's not for every day. If you're if you're not having legumes, beans, uh, vegetable stews, sort of once or twice a week, you're doing the Mediterranean diet wrong. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it
4: did
0: strike me actually, and I, I think this is exactly kind of where you're headed. It's actually incredibly easy to be a vegetarian or even maybe a vegan yes. in Greece, which I don't think you would necessarily think no. if you didn't think of it in in that way but actually one could exist very happily
2: no I mean the joke is that uh, sort of Greek grandmothers don't really understand vegetarianism so they're likely to serve you chicken (laughs) you know if you tell them I have a friend coming that's a vegetarian their response is likely to be oh good I'll roast a chicken But but if you told them that I have a friend coming, so you have to make something nistissimo, which is fasting food, uh, they'd completely get that. And they would make something like this. And they like, would make like something this. delicious mm. that's sort of so that's without animal protein. And so when I was compiling the recipes that would go in the book, um, completely ignoring their content as a guide because it was all about the recipes that are important to me and, and my mother and the family recipes, essentially, that's what this is. Um, a, a vegan friend asked me, will there be anything in there for me? And and I went back and looked at the list of recipes and was surprised to find that almost half of them mm. were mm. vegan. The perfect um, for... But without sort of trying to be vegan, which is often what... What yields the best recipes, you know, rather than something masquerading as something else, something that is has genuinely developed as a taste, but just happens to contain no animal product.
0: I can't hold out any longer. Can you? <laughs> I don't know how we've managed to well, hold out this long. Well, I'm being very polite, I suppose. I'm just oh, being very yes. polite, but I think we have to eat some of this yes, food. Do you think we should start with these beetroot and pickled <laughs> whatever raisins you and. Want. and, and now the, I, I would call this scordalia, but you <laughs> obviously I would
2: call it scordalia. So th- yes. it's very a very small difference, but uh, yes, the, scordo is garlic. Okay, and so this so is heavily garlic. Scordalia is basically scordo in oil, garlic and oil. So this is a uh, wow.
0: That's I'm going to hand you a fork. Yes a no bag. if you have Please a date say. this evening, <laughs> I'd advise
2: against well,
0: it. Well, I you know. And you I were mean, saying with <laughs> the with dates the, come the, dates go. Yes. <laughs> 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 Score their eyes forever. Right you know.
2: Okay. The
1: pickled raisins you were saying uh, as a w- replacement for for lemons because well not replacement well, but what came the, before lemons. The,
2: yes the predecessor of lemons. Yeah. So when they when they mm. wanted to um, when they wanted to sour dishes especially seafood where actually vinegar is not a particularly good uh, partner mm. for fish or prawn or something like that, um, they would use unripe grapes called agurida. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, I think uh, verjuice is becoming quite fashionable mm. again, yeah. which is the juice of the unripe as a souring agent. Um, but they're
0: absolutely delicious. They're delicious,
2: aren't they? Delicious. No, I know. I'm I'm very proud of that little <laughs> discovery. I I kept uh, I kept sort of searching to see if they were a thing. Because when I made them, I thought they must be a thing. Surely someone has done. Oh my God, this. they're oh, amazing! They're but they're not a thing. So <laughs> well, they soon are now, they will be. A soon to <laughs> be yes. a thing. You heard it here first. I have to say, yes.
0: Scordalia. Oh. Now, I is
2: that like your unlucky
0: Kefalonia I, experience? Yes, I had a. a Something that I really didn't enjoy. And I think of myself as a genuinely adventurous eater when I'm travelling. And hearty, a very hearty eater. But it defeated me, I have to say. But I now understand that it was not supposed to be freezing cold, nor made of potato, nor the texture of wallpaper paste. And now I have eaten this... I but, it is a different thing. Now, different admittedly, thing. you you would not want to eat that if you didn't like garlic. No, it is very heavily garlic. It it's is very absolutely garlicky, yes. delicious.
1: It's one of those things when you have those very garlicky things where you can feel your heart saying thank you. <laughs> yes, you know it knows that it's
2: good. <laughs> the pulse slowing down mm, yeah. and everything going. Just, yes,
1: really good. Yeah, really good. Now we're going to break the rules of your fasting period, aren't we? Because there is some
0: meat here. Oh, yes. Alex won't
1: though. Alex won't. We will. We will. You we can will. do it vicariously through us. <laughs> yes. But tell us more about this. This It's a cured it, meat, It's a it?
2: cured pork loin, air cured mm-hmm. uh, called Lusa. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it exists in various versions all around the Mediterranean. It's Basically the best cut of meat very gently oh. um, uh, salt cured and hung to it's good.
5: We
0: shouldn't both use it at the same time. No. Just <laughs> <so good.
2: laughs> and I'm delighted to see you doing that. Mm. But it's uh, um, and the idea, I guess, behind bringing that is that that particular version is is only made on the island where I was born, and so to me it carries very very specific memories of childhood. While well, to you it is a completely new take. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, and and I think that is part of the magic of food. Okay. Um, you've just tasted a bit of my childhood, mm. and there is no other way to share that, I think. Um, mm. You know, it's such a personal experience mm-hmm. that there is no other way to share that. My grandmother um, used to make me a little slice of bread with a drizzle of olive oil and some tomato paste on it. That was my... Snack. Mm. You know, when she was minding me, if my mother was working, that was my levenses, as it were. And I remember sharing that experience on social media at some point, and people suddenly coming up with all those things that their grandma used to give to them. And they were so unique and so unusual. I mean, there were people saying, uh, sandwich with shredded lettuce and sugar. Um, <laughs> that was that was actually I I got that from loads of people from the north of England mm. How saying interesting. that my mm. you know bread and dripping was another mm. very yeah. grandma sort of thing but you know different people from different countries were sharing these really simple tastes really basic tastes that were all about childhood and back to which they go when they're feeling a little bit lower a little bit down. Mm. But of course, no one would think or need to share something like that in a cookery book. But it is possibly the most important—you know—those first tastes. Mm. Uh, tastes are the most important thing. You yes, they, exactly. They, they sort of form your culinary character for life. You exactly. know, they are formative.
0: We had so much fun speaking to Alex and eating his food that that was just a small excerpt from a longer chat. You can hear the whole thing by searching for Alex Andreu, the Magic Bayleaf off the page on SoundCloud or iTunes and the Magic Bayleaf will be published in 2017. Now, how many finance ministers do you think can claim to have been called a rock star, a global celebrity and even the most interesting man in the world? Well, This guy can. Yanis Varoufakis is the leather jacket wearing, motorcycle riding, former finance minister of Greece who shot to fame in 2015 when he became the world's most prominent opponent of austerity after refusing to accept the terms of Greece's bailout. His new book, And the Weak Suffer What They Must, which presents the ultimate case against austerity, came out earlier this month. And on the evening of publication, Yanis was interviewed on stage at the Union Chapel in Islington, London, by The Guardian's Owen Jones. And you're about to get the best seats in the house. Here's Owen Jones talking to Yanis Varoufakis about protest, being arrested, and the importance of what you sign your name to.
5: Just to kick off, actually, I'm think so all i think we all, I'm not going to introduce Yanis, that's just pointless and silly, unless you've just wandered off the streets. Maybe I should introduce Owen Jones. <laughs> This could, go, this could go one of two ways. I'm not willing to risk it. We all know, Yanis, many of you all know, he lived in this country for about 10 years, studied here, of course. But I didn't know, you were arrested about five times as an activist. Yeah.
4: Uh, the first time was the steel workers' strike, 1979, I believe. Uh, then again, there was a, a couple of arrests, actually, whopping. Whopping, yes. yes. That was a big one. <laughs> when the forces of democracy uh, on horseback attacked uh, recalcitrant uh, typesetters and printers and some students who were supporting them. Um, Another once or twice uh, during the 84 um, minor strike strike, uh, in uh, Nottinghamshire, if I recall correctly. Uh, There was also a case here when uh, we were uh, demonstrating for the release of Nelson Mandela while Mrs. Thatcher was referring to him as a terrorist. That was at Hyde Park. And Something. I ended up with yes. civil row. and applause.
5: <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> now, you come from quite a political family, don't you? Your dad uh, was, a, was a leftist, and he was, he was imprisoned in concentration camps. For his yes, yes,
4: yes, yes. It's, um, it's a funny story, because, as I was telling Owen before... It doesn't
5: sound funny there, does it? You all <laughs> Well, heard actually, that. it is a
4: funny story, because yeah. <laughs> um, he wasn't that much of a leftist. He, he grew up in a multicultural cosmopolitan uh, community in Cairo in the 1940s, uh, 1950s, um, as a part of the expat Greek community. There were lots of communities there, Jewish community, British community, Italian, French, and so on and so forth. And and his mother uh, educated him from very young age to the virtues of the French enlightenment and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire and uh, uh, all that. And so he arrived in Greece as a fluent Greek speaker, a native Greek, but somebody who had no idea of what uh, Greece meant. He had never lived there. Uh, and this was at the period, the lull between the first and the second civil war between left and right. It was a lull, a period of the dawn between left and right. The left and the right tried to have some kind of accommodation of each other. So when my father arrived, this is the story that he told me, um, both sides latched onto him, they thought, oh, this is a UFO that has landed on, on planet Athens. So we will turn him into the president of the Students' Union as a neutral agent. And my father was chaffed to, ta- to play that role. Uh, a few weeks later, the director of the university, the vice chancellor of the university, doubled the fees at the time when students were fainting from malnutrition. So my father thought, as the student leader, He had a duty to go to the rector and complain, and of course, he did in the most polite manner, uh, which is typical of my father. My father is an extremely polite person, nothing like me, as I was telling him. Um, And okay, the rector listened to him, dismissed him, my father left, and as uh, as he was uh, descending the steps outside the chancellery at the University of Athens, he was apprehended by secret police. He was uh, roughed up and taken into an interrogation room. It didn't last long. It wasn't very serious uh, beating up. It was just enough to humiliate him. He was incensed, of course. <laughs> and then the good cop comes and says, oh, you've been, you're a good boy. Sorry, we shouldn't have done this to you. Um, go home. Sorry about this. Forgive us. Oh, by the way, uh, here's the declaration. Please sign it so you can go home. And this was a de- denunciation of communism. And my father said, you know, so, um, I'm not a Buddhist, but um, I would never sign an official state document denying, denying, denouncing Buddhism. It's none of your business what I think about these matters. And then he got deeper into the dungeons uh, where he was seriously tortured and uh, ended up for four years, four and a half years in a concentration camp. So that's how, And of course, he was incarcerated in communists,
5: communist, so he joined the communist party. <laughs> so that worked well for them. Um, so, look, Greece... You became, of course, the finance minister and in Syriza's government when they were elected last January. Now, I suspect that a number of people in this room, when Syriza were elected, they felt very inspired by it. Mm -hmm. And that's because we've had years of people being forced to pay for a crisis they didn't cause all across Europe to varying degrees and scale Mm -hmm. and whatever, but that common theme. And I went there to Greece. I was in Mm -hmm. Athens. I saw, you know, the slogan, hope is coming. I saw the jubilation when Syriza pulled off that election win. And that, in that hope that I and people, some people certainly in this room had, was matched by the fear of the people running European countries, because the reason we were inspired is we thought this would embolden others. If Syriza can succeed, <laughs> then in Spain and Portugal and elsewhere, that will encourage others, and then the dominoes could fall by one by one. And that's exactly why they said, We're not going to allow this to succeed. So Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, said, with the case of Greece, he wasn't scared about economic contagion or financial contagion, he was scared about political contagion, that the disease, if you like, of Syriza would spread across the European continent. In that sense, were you doomed from the beginning? You were up against this colossal machine which had no intention of allowing you to succeed because of the impact it would have had across Europe.
4: We were not doomed from the beginning. We should never take the view that a good fight is doomed from the beginning. It is true that we were the David facing the Goliath and that the Goliath was determined to trample upon us in case of political contagion. There is no doubt that, it, that they feared above all else our success. Because if we succeeded in renegotiating uh, the bailout arrangements of Greece with the Troika of lenders, then imagine what the Irish uh, voters would say to Michael Noonan and to their prime minister. Why didn't you do what the Greeks did? Imagine what the Spaniards would say to Mr. Rajoy, their prime minister, their right-wing prime minister. Why did you impose these harsh measures on us without trying to negotiate? The Greeks did it. so it was absolutely essential for them to try to crush us. And tried they did from day one. I moved into the Ministry of Finance on the 27th of January two days after the election. Three days later, I had the president of the Eurogroup, uh, Mr. Dazelboom, visit me in my office and he made it abundantly clear within five minutes of our conversation that if we insisted on challenging the economic policies in Greece, did you get this? We were just elected. We had a mandate from the Greek people to reboot Greece, to challenge the existing policies. So I was told, if you insist on changing the economic policy of the previous government, Your banks will be closed by the end of the month. No uncertain terms. And it it, it was clear to them, to them, to us, to them, we knew it, that they knew it, and so on, that exactly as Owen has said, for them what mattered most was that our government should be overthrown, or even better, that it should overthrow itself. Because that was the only way of stopping this domino effect, of infecting with the idea of hope the the Spanish, the Italians, the Portuguese, the Irish, and the French. That is where the buck stopped, or the Euro stopped, as far as they were concerned. But does this mean that we were doomed? We faced an ironclad, holy, or unholy alliance. But were we doomed? No. We knew a year and a half before our election, that we would face this blackmail, that the banks will be used in 2015 in precisely the same way that the tanks were used in 1967, as vehicles by which to crush Greek democracy. We knew that. And we had our own small weapon, like David had the catapult. That weapon, I won't go into the technicalities, was a bunch of bonds, Greek government bonds from the past, owned by the European Central Bank, I could, with one signature, restructure them, effectively postpone the repayment of this debt to the ECB for, by 20 years, uh, and that would have caused a significant rupture within the Eurozone. So this was our um, credible response, weapon, if you want. Uh, And we had agreed with the Prime Minister, with our team, that we would be using this if they dared close down our, our banks in order to asphyxiate our government and effectively to overthrow Greek democracy. Unfortunately, that weapon was removed and I was not allowed to use it. And this is why I resigned. And this is why we surrendered. But that hope that was inspired by our victory in January 2015, we should not allow it to go away. We should not allow it to wither. because. It was a miracle. A party of 4% became a party of 40%. And we won government. And we won something more than government. We were walking along the streets of Athens without any guards, as ministers, and we had people coming up to us who were, you know, uh, street cleaners, nurses, homeless people, and were hugging us and were saying to us, don't give in. And some of them didn't vote for us. We had enormous support from right-wing working-class people. For the first time in the history of Europe, we broke down the division between working-class progressives and working-class Tories. And the fact that it was possible to do it should inspire all of us everywhere throughout Europe. We've got to to take what happened in the Athens spring, as I call it, and uh, make sure that it... uh, is replicated everywhere.
5: And this is, by the way, such an important point, because uh, the number one rule for all these sorts of events is you leave more hopeful than when you enter the room. So no pressure, but that's what we're all going to do. Uh, and, and this is, you know, and we'll talk about kind of more practical stuff uh, in terms of what Yanis what has been doing. Um, but just on your relationship with, uh, with Cyprus, the prime minister, the leader, you were seen as a bit of a double act to begin with. You were close, you, of course, as finance minister. That I thought
4: we were. It was good, while it lasted.
5: So what yeah. happened? How, how was that fissure, that division? Because effectively, as you put it, the Troika and all the others, they intentionally widened the division between you. How? how well, did there was no
4: division. The way I understood it, the way I felt it, was as if they had very carefully inserted a wedge between us and started sort of hammering it in. Hammering hammering it in slowly, steadily, and steadfastly. Uh, Exactly when that wedge was inserted, when it managed to create the fault line between us, I'm not still sure exactly when it happened. Uh, Some of my colleagues tell me that it happened before. I thought it did. It became clear, though, that we were at that state by the end of April. um, We won the election on the 25th of January. By the end of April... uh, Effectively, what I think happened was that the Troika, just like in the case of my father, they were playing, you know, good cop and bad cop. Um, And the good cop who was Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, was giving the prime minister the impression that as long as he made compromises and as long as he jettisoned me, I was a bad guy. he would get a decent deal from her. It never happened. In the end, he was faced with what he himself described on the 13th of July after my departure as a coup d'etat, as a putsch, as effectively being forced to surrender. The reason why I was so inconvenient was because I had made sure that in all my communications with a German ambassador, with... Uh, the president of the Eurogroup, with the German finance minister, with everyone, with the American president, with everyone, that I would never sign a surrender document. And this, why is this important? Why, it's not that I am important. It's because something that many people don't know, that in Europe, these bailout deals that effectively um, constrain a country, a nation, for decades. It's like taking a huge debt uh, and going into debt bondage, not just for yourself, but for your your children and your grandchildren. That deal, that debt bondage deal, which is the bailout agreement, is signed by one person, not the, the prime minister, not the president of the republic, by the finance minister. And when this finance minister was saying, I'm not signing, then it was important for them to drive that wedge between us.
0: Will, you're going to take us back in time even further now, aren't you?
1: Yes, we are going all the way back to ancient Greece. And where is the best place to find out more about that? At the British Museum, of course. Right, I'm here in the British Museum with Caroline Alexander, who has recently written a new translation of Homer's Iliad. And we are as close as we can get to ancient Greece, walking around the gallery here, and we can see... Currently at the moment we are in the era in which Homer lived, is that right Caroline?
3: Yes, this is the so-called geometric period, which is how archaeologists would label it. And so we're standing before some cases of uh, very lovely, very elegant... um, pottery decorated with close geometric patterns, and so we have to, I suppose, imagine Homer <laughs> at least having one of those in his house.
1: <laughs> uh, so my first question really is, obviously many people will, will know of, of Homer's Iliad, and of course there are many translations of it. The question I suppose today is, why did you want to tackle that particular text today?
3: Well, it's a, it's a massive task, uh, It's 15,693 lines of verse. So the first answer is you have to really want to do it. And I think it's hard to explain. That's just very personal. It's, it's why I suppose people climb mountains or, or embark on any project that's challenging. It's something I love. It's something I've always loved. I love reading it in Greek. I love reading it in translation. A lot of my own work and writing in an odd way has been informed by the Iliad. So it was a personal personal project, uh, which I think I knew I would do for a very long time. Um, for the public, for people other than Caroline, why would this be of interest? I do believe it fills um, a niche. There, aren't, uh, there are lots and lots of translations of the Iliad, but many of them are very interpretive mm. uh, people, or they come from an era when poetry meant having to rhyme, which interferes with the purity of, uh, the, of the translation. Mm. So you can sort of look at a whole uh, hundred years of translations, and they would not really be very much like Homer. When you come into the modern era, the 20th, 20th century translations, you start getting people really trying to stick very close to the text, as, as I have done. But the best one of those modern translations was done about 50, 60 years ago. And even in that time, through no fault of the translator, it sounds a bit uh, stately, a Mm. bit uh, slow, lumbering at times. And that is the very opposite of how the Iliad reads. So I feel that, in fact, 21st century English is well suited to the swift plain style of Homer's Iliad. So I think I landed at a good time and I think I've rendered something that's as close to the Greek experience as is available.
1: So you're, when you're translating, what you're looking to do with your translation is to really get close to the, the voice of Homer. So yes. We're as close. So does that mean sticking very closely to the Greek and maybe interpreting less?
3: Interpreting as little as possible. Mm. I mean, every translation involves some degree of, in, of interpretation, but this is i like to i imagine myself carving it almost close to the bone of the greek if mm. that makes sense yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so i um felt that my asset for this ironically was not my knowledge of greek but my the fact i've been a professional writer for 30 years mm. i've had to earn my living by using the english <laughs> language so <laughs> you either sink or swim on that There there are in fact lots of people who read greek we don't think of that but if you think of all the universities or the schools that teach it, it it's not a it's not a common uh, skill but it's not super super rare mm. so the greek knowing Greek is less important than knowing Engli- the using English really well. Mm. So I felt that the ability to get close to the Greek relied as much on English skills as it did on Greek skills, and so I felt I could step into that.
1: Um, I was going to ask, because I know that a bit like Shakespeare, there is this, there's an authorial question, isn't there, with, yeah. with Homer, and I wondered whether you had any sense, through working so closely with the text, whether you were dealing with one writer or many writers...
3: I have very strong opinions on that, um, which uh, I think it depends, well, there are several camps, so I'll fall very strongly into one camp and be ostracized by the other, but (laughs) I I believe very firmly in the one-author theory. Uh, There is no question that there was a long oral tradition behind this poem. Nobody would dispute that. The question is, when this... the the poem that we have, the the poem that's come to us, in what circumstances was it shaped? Mm. Was it shaped by simply another bard perpetuating the long tradition as he had always done, or was it shaped by somebody in a more, um, taking a more aggressive or personal stand addressing the the material, Mm. which is the beginning of writing as opposed to perpetuation? Whether by writing we mean mechanically, with a pen or stylus, or I'm less interested in that aspect. I'm interested in the attitude of the final poet. Yeah. Did he see this as material he could work with and use, or did he see it as material he had to perpetuate as it had been given to him? I believe it is the first, that this at this exciting moment in history, we know a lot about Homer's era, everything was changing. Yeah. Attitudes to authority, political... Uh, political set-ups, um, colonization, people striking out on their own, the hero of the Iliad is a maverick. Um, It seems right that at this moment would be the time that a poet would turn around and say, this this martial poem has fabulous elements, but I'm going to shape it a little differently than it's been done before. Um, and then working closely with the text you feel very much you're in the hands of a master writer.
1: Mm. Now, you use the word hero there, which is interesting because I was going to ask whether in a text like this you know, should we be thinking about a hero, a villain, sympathies on one side or the other or because it is a text which is looking at war is it is it slightly greyer than that? Is it, is it slightly more complicated? It's
3: magnificently even-handed is how I would say so I suppose that means grey. The remarkable thing about the iliad is that you have a war poem written in greek national epic of greece um, about a greek campaign but as much if not more emotional sympathy is located with the trojans you're inside the trojan city the Mm. death of hector counts as much as any emotional other emotional aspect of the whole of the whole epic and that's extraordinary i mean Mm. if you try to think of anything else that evokes war that can be so utterly even-handed this is very very rare i believe this has directly to relates to the circumstance of how the tradition came to us so imagine you have the bronze age collapsing which is what happened different people leave greek from different regions so we know that the people from thessaly in the north who carry achilles migrate eastward and come to the island of Lesbos. Hmm. We, kn- we know this through archaeology, scant archaeology and dialect. On the island of Lesbos are living Trojans. Right They're, They are the same culture as Troy. Yeah. And so there's this extraordinary period of a few centuries where these refugees come and settle in a place that's peopled by the other side of the story. And out of that, centuries later, comes our Iliad, and mm. I believe that formative period of living, coexisting with each other, and you can see some language exchanges, mm. was what helped tone down the hostility possibly to the Trojan enemy.
1: It's interesting, even just you saying the word Lesbos and refugee relatively Today, close together, exactly.
3: Absolutely. I think of that every time I read the headlines, yeah. I mean, these people are all carrying epic stories in an odd way, and you don't know generations from now how those might, you know, this is an ep- an em- a migration of epic proportions, of historic proportions. Mm. Uh, we know that right now, but imagine generations from now when people are sort of telling those stories and will, what new form of storytelling will, you know, sort of encapsulate that. And, um, no, I think that, that one of the lessons one learns from working with a poem of such antiquity, Homer, we date roughly to around 700, 730, 750 BC, mm. is there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, we can actually just move from, from this room that we're in at the moment to the one next door, which looks at the the period in which the Iliad is actually set. So that's the Mycenaean yes, period. Yes, yes. Um, and I think this is one of the fascinating things about walking around a museum anyway, which is that we can see here uh, not just pottery, but also weapons, weapons from that period. Yes. And it seems very appropriate when looking at this particular text.
3: Yes, um, the, the My- it's you know, the Mycenaean civilization, which is the one that, we be- that Homer was evoking, or his tradition had clearly preserved, and he inherited that part of the tradition. Um, it it does have writing uh, of a very limited kind that seems to have been from what we've discovered limited only to stock keeping and and sort Mm. store keeping records so we don't have any indication of songs sung or or poetry or anything like that or or even their their culture so we only have the material remains they left to, to judge their character by And there seem to be a lot of weapons (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of fortifications and pottery has as a theme lots and lots of military funerals, lots and lots of men marching off to war. Mm. So I think it is, uh, and then what we know from some of the uh, records from other cultures in the area such as the Hippotites, I think we can safely say the Mycenaeans were a very militarily minded people and they um, operated by both trading and raiding. Mm. And so we have to picture sort of people in boats, almost like Viking longboats to some degree, mm. you know, out busily plying the waters of the Aegean, setting up trading outposts on the coast of what's now Turkey, um, but also causing quite a bit of trouble <laughs> along the way. And uh, we can see this in the poem. There's a, a wonderful passage where Achilles speaks of raids, the number of raids he's conducted mm. on land and by sea, and you sort of see in that the true Mycenaean warrior um, origin.
1: Uh, you've also written about modern soldiering and, and post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that as well, and I just wondered, is this a text, uh, like many classical texts, that continues to have a relevance today, or, or, or is it very much rooted in, in its historical past?
3: I, I believe that this is... Um, I know as a classicist I'm meant to sort of celebrate all surviving ancient works, Mm. but I would be willing to concede that some have lost their relevance to us and that one studies them for reasons of historical interest. Mm. This poem has never lost its relevance to the human condition. That is why I believe it still remains popular. Um, Its movies are made of it. it's not just a text that sort of belongs to academia, mm. um, although I feel academia appropriated it perhaps wrongly in some degree. One of my hopes with the translation is that it is c- completely accessible as it should be as just great storytelling. But um, there's, I, I read a historian who said that if you take uh, any random 5,000 year period, you know, any, any random 100 year period in the last 5,000 years, 94 years of that 100 would be involved in large-scale conflict somewhere in the globe. Right. So I think we can safely say, and what, what Homer certainly believes, is that war is part of the human condition. Mm. It's not anti-war in the modern sense. It's simply saying this is as inevitable as is mortality, mm. is, as is death. And it's tragic, and it's heartbreaking, um, but it seems to go on and on and on. And in terms of sort of directly relevant to modern day, um, I've had so many people tell me, you know, i would written a book about the Iliad previous to that, that one person came to me and said, your book has the sands of Mesopotamia in it, because he'd taken it to Iraq. And I have another close friend who, when his uh, buddy died, had, for, for reasons I still almost don't understand myself, the first line of the Iliad in Greek tattooed on his arm um, uh, Menon Aide Thea r- Roth Sing goddess Roth and so when I've spoken to people who are soldiers who are professional soldiers unrepentant soldiers mm. um, they respond to this in a way that uh, again I feel that Our view of the Iliad has been framed so much by academic kind of posturing about it Mm. that we forget that it is completely accessible to people who possibly have lived war experience. And so, this military aspect is a very, I'm very respectful of because I think that they understand possibly this weird, heady blend of both bravado and glory and exaltation and heartbreaking tragedy. It's, you can't. You can't separate the two.
1: Mm. Now, finally, because you just mentioned there about how academia has sort of claimed the text, and of course it comes from an oral tradition. Now, many people will be reading your translation, but uh, I know the BBC are working on a sort of big sword and sandals epic, and I wonder, are you looking forward to seeing that sort of thing on TV or? Do you secretly wish that you know to hear your text spoken aloud in in the tradition from which it came?
3: Well, I responded to this. Somebody asked me about this question, the mm. the, the BBC production yesterday, and I misunderstood. So I un- answered one way, and I'm now <laughs> going to answer the other you know, way. Issue a corrective. <laughs> I understood it to be an actual attempt to to enact the Iliad, right? Meaning with the words of Homer mm-hmm. spoken, so with a narrator possibly acting as a co- in the role of chorus, mm. um, uniting the passages and the great speeches spoken by fine actors. And that, I thought, would have been thrilling. Uh, now that I understand <laughs> that it's more sort of plucking the story, uh, which we've already seen done with uh, Wolfgang Peterson's Troy, mm. um, which I saw the first, I think, seven minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm less thrilled. It, it's a it's a fabulous story. There is no question about that. But it must be remembered that this story has been conveyed in very specific language, and the specific language of possibly our Western civilization's greatest and earliest writer, mm. and it's his words, his words that have made this story sing, and. There's a, um, there were, we know there are other epics of the era. Mm-hmm. They've lost, vanished into the mist of time, and all we have that survive of them are little potted histories, little summaries that were left by a rather obscure character, possibly in the, uh, a- in the 80s, um, not BCs, who who's gives a summary of them. And they're pathetic when you boil them down to the action, as mm. this person has done. And so what makes these stories sing are the words of the master writer. And I think one has to be very wary of boiling them down just to the sequence of actions. Um, you might just get something that's swords and sandals and not, not an epic.
1: Well, we recently had a, a production, well not so recently, there was a production uh, of The Great Gatsby, the entire text read by an actor uh, which was called Gatsby. So maybe we can issue a plea that somebody might take the entire text of the Iliad and and, and read it for an audience, to hear it as, of course, it would have been heard at them.
3: Yes, or audio book or something of that
1: sort. Well, Caroline, it's been fascinating to talk to you, especially uh, immersed, as we are, by all these amazing artefacts. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our time-travelling podcast this month, and as ever, we'd love to know what you think. Leave a comment on SoundCloud or a rating on iTunes, and we look forward to seeing you again next month.